five something in the morning and head to the Abilene Airport with the whole fam. I've been reading books of old, the legends and the myths, Achilles and his gold, Achilles and his gifts, Spider-Man's control, and Batman with his fist. Okay, so we just met up in Philadelphia Airport. Um, we are headed to Athens together, me and my buddy Luke Norsworthy. Because we have to go all the way to Greece, to Athens, to find a place that worships the marketplace. Because we don't do that here. We yeah. don't obsess over the market or yeah. advertisements or billboards or right. stuff you can buy just when you're about to get on the plane. It's honestly hard to relate to. I can't think of anywhere where we people care that much about it. Yeah, that's, no kidding. That's like, why we're going. Yeah. Anyway. Uh, Luke Norsworthy preaches at a church in Austin, Texas, and we went to Athens to do this for our churches. But the whole time, I kid you not, I thought about, I want to do this here because... Christians make the best atheists. I mean that every way possible. And hopefully over the next couple of days, I'm going to describe to you something that I've been thinking about for years. I've been workshopping this idea for years. People are a lot smarter than me. I've been trying to like float this out there. And every time it keeps coming back, like, yeah, that, you're, you're on to something. So when I was in high school, it was the first time I ever met an atheist, or at least someone who told me that they were an atheist. I was working at the Memphis Flea Market in Little Rock, because they didn't know how to name things in Little Rock, and I was like delivering tables, and I met this guy, and I was wearing a Lord's Gym t-shirt, hashtag evangelism, and while I'm talking to this guy, it comes out that he's an atheist, and my first thought was like, but you're like such a regular guy, I didn't think that they looked like this. And, you know, then my second thought was, I hope it doesn't rub off on me. Like, I start put, like, a coexist bumper sticker on my car and start voting Democrat or whatever it is that atheists do. Just kidding. That joke goes over a lot better in Texas. But anyway, <laughs> um, I, he didn't do any of those things. Actually, when we started talking, it turned out that he wasn't always an atheist. He grew up Baptist. And so finally, we had something, like, rational that we could argue about again. And... That's also a joke. We'll, we'll, we'll find each other in this. Um, at, at all the, throughout the last couple of decades, almost everybody who was an atheist that I have met, almost every single one of them used to be a Christian. There's been a few people that I've met that used to be um, religiously Jewish. Um, a, one Muslim person who used to be a Muslim. But for the most part, they all had faith. And then they found faith in God too difficult, too like intellectually cumbersome and there was some stuff that just kept them from being able to say I believe that still so they came out and they told the people around them people that they loved and people who cared about them they told them they no longer believed in God and I know this isn't always the case um, but a lot of times the kind of the stereotype of an angry atheist comes from the fact that when they did tell people they no longer believed in God they got treated really really poorly by the people that they loved. And to me, and I bet to you, these are not ideas of people. This is not like a demographic that I'm thinking of first and foremost. These are people that I love and care about, who I grew up with, who are very close to me. And they stopped believing. And since there's been kind of a, um, a ramp up of that group of people over the last couple of decades, I want to talk about it. There's been 
lots of deconversions. I bet a lot of people here know people who used to be something and now they don't believe in anything. And I want to just kind of set the stage before we get into this. And I promise you, this is going to, this is like one of my favorite things I've ever been able to talk about. Here's why, kind of the stage for what is going on with the people that you love in your life and maybe in your own heart. Right after 9-11, y'all may remember that on September 16th, 2001, on Sunday, September 16th, 2001, there was a, 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 an immediate like uh, surge of all things religious. If you were at church on that Sunday, you noticed that the churches and synagogues were packed all over the country. In fact, they were packed the next Sunday as well. It looked like a, a real revival. And then uh, the week after and the weeks after, it kind of started to settle down. And everything looked like it had gone back to normal, but it hadn't. Because a neuroscientist named Sam Harris had begun, had sat down at his typewriter and had begun to write a book. And the book was, um, the, the book was called The End of Faith, The Terror of Faith, and The Future of Reason. And it was a scathing critique, not just of Islam, but of all things religious. His argument was not just that Islam did this, but that religion is ruining everything. And it was rejected by every major publisher until finally Sam Harris got somebody who would publish it. And it spent 36 weeks on the New York Times bestseller list. Around that time, Richard Dawkins um, wrote a book called The God Delusion. And he wrote in the beginning of that book, if this book functions the way I intend for it to, then people who believe, this, believe in God when they pick it up, by the time they put it down, will no longer believe in God. And three million people bought that book in 35 different languages. There's a, um, a, the very same, next year, a guy named Christopher Hitchens came out and wrote a book called How Religion Poisons Everything. And again, that book sold like crazy. And these guys were rock stars. They were on every college campus. They were on late night talk shows. They were everywhere. And their argument was not against Islam. Their argument was against all religion. Their main argument was that religion is bad for the world. And by all metrics, they got, they won. Because by all measurable metrics, their argument has taken hold of the collective imagination of the West. Religion really does make the world a worse place. And so now, today, there's an increasing number of people that, you know, if you live in the church world, or really, if you just have opened a newspaper in the last year or two, you've heard about this group of people. It's called the nuns, and it's important how you spell it. Everybody here knows the nuns, N-O-N-E-S. 23% of uh, American population is now nun, which is not affiliated with any religion. And these are people who do not want to get in an argument with you about it. They're not looking to like argue about faith. They're not looking to argue about why they don't go to church anymore or anything like this. And um, almost all, a lot, the, the majority of them are millennials. They're males. They're mostly left-leaning politically. And they're not hostile towards religion. That's important. They're not going like, to get into a Facebook argument with you. They might, but for the most part, they won't. What they will do is they just don't want to be affiliated with it anymore. They're, they're, they're done with it. Not because they're so attracted to atheism. That's the thing. Those guys did not convince people to move towards atheism or to, move, to become an atheist. What they did was convince them to move away from faith. 
or from the idea that that faith is important. And so this is a series that started because of that. This is an idea that got rooted in my mind about five, six, seven years ago as I started watching my buddies um, walk away from faith. Not because they were, you know, indignant or belligerent or anything like that, but because it just stopped mattering to them so much. And, and it, honestly, I've had moments where I thought this whole thing kind of was implausible. Like, why am I doing what I'm doing with my life? Would I go to church if I didn't get paid to go to church? But the problem is, and this is the real problem, every time I listen to one of my friends or somebody who's a, a explaining why they deconverted, when they walked away from faith, God, church, Jesus, Christianity, whenever I listen to them explain why they did it, whenever I read the blogs about people who deconverted, there's a lot of reasons why people give. Some of them it's because of a tragedy that happened in their life. Some of it's because they took a class or they read a book or um, you know, sometimes it's a process that took years or a conversation they had. But almost every time I find myself thinking, wait a second. What you just said has nothing to do with Christianity. What you just said has actually nothing to do with the God of Jesus. In fact, the things that they tell me, the reasons that they turned away from Christianity, God, church, Jesus, whatever, I find myself thinking almost always, that's, I don't believe in that God either. Not just that, but th- that's not even true. Or what you're describing as so like repugnant to you, the first Christians would have found incredibly offensive. And here's the big idea of tonight. Um, and it, it is, this is the big idea. The first Christians never embraced so many of the ideas that so many of us find offensive. The things that we're walking away from church, that our friends are walking away from church, to, um, they, they, they would have found those very offensive. And the stuff that you really hate about religion, I just would love to get this in your mind, maybe for yourself, maybe for your friends, the stuff you really hate about religion, you may find that you are actually not walking away from, but walking toward. So let me explain. The central argument of the Bible, the thing that is from Genesis to Revelation, if there was one thing in the Bible, it would be love God and don't worship idols. That's it. I mean, that is the whole thing in the Bible. Um, so it, it's in all this stuff that because maybe if you grew up in church, you've heard these stories, but you didn't know that that's what those stories were. Like, for example, when God goes to Moses and says, I want you to lead my people out of slavery in Egypt, Moses is going to go to Pharaoh, the, the you know, king of Egypt, the, the emperor of Egypt, and he's going to say, I want you to let these slaves go. And Pharaoh says, I don't know what God you're saying is telling me to do that. And so God gives him an introduction. The um, Pharaoh at the time, probably Ramses II, Ramses II had nine bows, nine bows of power. I feel like I've said this at Risen before, but it's important. Nine bows of power, which were the ones, uh, like the, the powers or the, the little G gods that kind of helped Pharaoh keep things in order. Because um, his whole job was to keep order in Egypt. And so, you know, he had the, the power of the sun, Ra, which was a big one, the power of the Nile, which is a big one, livestock, you know, all these different things. And Moses goes and tells Pharaoh, let, God said, let the people go. Pharaoh says, I don't know that God. And God introduces himself by how? Breaking the nine bows of Pharaoh. That's what he does. He breaks them one at a time with the 10 plagues. And the 10th plague, because Pharaoh was telling everybody he was God in the flesh, was God destroying the dynasty of Pharaoh. 
So this, I mean, this is like God at war, right? God is breaking the bows of Pharaoh. And then after God delivers them, here's what's interesting. They, you know, they go in wilderness for 40 years or whatever, but when they're about to go into the promised land, they stop before they get there. And Moses has now handed on the baton to Joshua. And Joshua stops right before he gets there. And look at this. In Joshua chapter 24, I find this very interesting. In Joshua 24, what is that? Oh, <laughs> this is okay. I did not know that was how it was going to come up. Are we going to watch something? Okay, so it says, now fear the Lord and serve him. So he stops before they go into the promised land. And he says, now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away your gods, the gods your ancestors worshipped, beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt, and serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourself this day who you will serve, whether the gods your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates or the gods of the Amorites and whose land you are living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. How many of you grew up seeing this like crocheted or on porcelain dishes? Yeah, right? We thought, oh, that's such a beautiful thing. No, here's what Joshua's actually doing. He's stopping before they go into the promised land, and he's like, all right, this is a line in the sand. You have to decide today who you're going to serve. And as a preacher, I think it's fascinating that he gives a multiple choice invitation. I would never do that. Uh, If you'd like to follow Jesus today, I'd just like to invite you to come down. If you'd like to follow, I don't know, um, Marduk, then maybe you could come down on this side. No, he lets them pick, but here's what he does. He get, looked at what he says, like the gods from the Amorites or the, God, the, peop, the people that um, are in the land that you're living. And here's what's interesting about those categories. He's giving them categories based on their situations in life. The gods that they're tempted to worship come at them from the situation in life, just like the gods you're tempted to worship. Because here's the thing. The gods have made costume changes. They have not gone away. The principalities and powers have been renamed. They have not changed. You get rebranding, right? I mean, like once upon a time, Best Buy was Sound of Music. Subway used to be called Pete's Sandwich Shop. Google was once Back Rub. Then somebody was like, hey, could we, uh, could we get a less creepy name maybe? <laughs> like We get rebranding. That's exactly what's happened. The principalities and powers have rebranded because all of us are worshipers we we think you know church buildings and maybe singing songs or something like that or maybe statues but all of us are worshipers it's hard drived into who we are it's true of every culture and every civilization you are built to bow there's this one philosopher a guy named peter kreeft who says the opposite of theism is not atheism the opposite of theism is idolatry and from Genesis to Revelation, the Bible has the harshest things to say about idolatry. Did you know that Genesis 1 is, um, a, a contrary to what like, you may have grown up hearing, it, it is not a proof text against Charles Darwin. Obviously, they've not, the, the book of Genesis is never written in like the scientific error. It's addressing something else. And if you know what it's actually saying, it's way more controversial. Because guess what? In the world that Genesis was first written in, you want to know what they worshipped? The sun, the moon, the stars, created things. And Genesis 1 is written like a rock. I mean, it's just so subversive. In the beginning, God, the God, the one and only God, created the heavens and the earth. Those things aren't gods. Those things were created by God. And, and that day, everybody worshipped those things. 
They, were, they all felt, you know, they realized that they were dependent on them and connected to them somehow. And they made sacrifices to the sun god Ra, or they worshipped the god of livestock, or they worshipped the rain god Baal. And here comes the book of Genesis, like a freight train over those beliefs, saying God made all those things. That is the major message of the Bible. The creator God is the one we worship, and nothing else is worthy of our worship. Not just that. The one true God puts his image in one place. Other gods had their images, their icons everywhere. But this God puts their image in one place. And you want to know where it is? In Genesis 1.27, it says God put his image in human beings. But the word that is translated their image is translated everywhere else, idol. God put his idol, his representation of who God is, in us. And this is why when the prophets talk about idolatry, the twin side of it is oppression and injustice. Because if you want to know where idolatry is, watch where the injustice is. Watch where oppression happens. Because if you're treating people poorly around you, there's probably, at the root of it, idolatry. Whenever something becomes more important to you than how you treat the person in front of you and care for the people right in front of you, chances are you've got some idolatry in your life. Or uh, the way one prophet says it in Ezekiel, if you could put that up in this way. Ezekiel 14.4. I've never seen this. I've done this all over the place. I've never seen that. Then I said, not so, sovereign Lord. I've never defiled my... Wait, that is not the right thing. Ezekiel 14.4? Okay, basically, here's what Ezekiel says. It's fine. I can just do it from, from heart. I've just got to translate it from Hebrew. Um, <laughs> just, just kidding. Basically, what Ezekiel 14.4 says is... <laughs> do y'all know Hebrew here? Than I do. Yeah, so in, in Ezekiel 14.4, it says, uh, the people who put, oh wow, that's good. Speak to them and tell them, this is what the sovereign Lord says, when any of the Israelites set up idols in their hearts and put a wicked something before their faces and then go, go to the, uh, have them go to a prophet, a truth teller. Here's the point, that one saying I really want you to get because the prophets just rail against it all the time. But where do they put up the idols? In their hearts. It's not a statue. It doesn't mean you necessarily have to go to a certain building or something like that. Your idol, your idolatry can be anything from your money, worshiping your money, to worshiping your sexuality, to your nation, to your political ideas, to, you know, anything. Anything can be a God. Anything that you look to for ultimate significance and you say, if I don't have that, my life is worthless. If I don't have that, my life is meaningless. And by the way, idols are never bad things. You wouldn't want to worship them if they were. There are always good things that we make great things, that we try to make central, that we say, if we don't have that, we're, we don't want to live. And, and when they have your worship, they will ultimately do that to you. Idols make promises. They always promise to give you everything for nothing. That's the initial promise. And over time, and this is the, you know, it's, it's, it's like addiction. That's a, a modern-day word for idolatry with, with certain kinds of substances or habits. But it's it, with everything. Over time, they promise you everything for nothing. And over time, they take everything. And they give you nothing. This is why the prophets are so adamant about them. They're, they're so adamant against them. Because they always lead to heartache and pain. In fact, if you want to find the idolatry in your life, honestly, the best way to do it is to chase your misery. What has made you miserable in life? And so throughout the Bible, the people of God would wake up and they would realize we are worshiping false gods. And then they would, you know, they would worship 
you know, security, the sense of security that maybe uh, working with Assyria could give them or whatever it is, whatever it looked like. And then they would rededicate themselves to the Lord. And the Lord would always ask the same thing. Well, then get rid of all the idols. Get rid of the high places. Get rid of. And so like um, King Hezekiah is a great example of this. King Hezekiah comes in and wrecks shop. He ruins all these things, but he doesn't just get rid of these things. Look at this. They found this last year. This is so great. They, this is an actual thing archaeologists found over a temple of another God in Israel. You want to know what that is? It's a toilet. Hezekiah put a crapper up over the altar of another God, which is like super offensive, I would think. But the point that it's trying to do, I mean, um, God's, God's not against idols because they're bad ideas. God's not against idolatry because he like bothers him a little bit. God is against idolatry for the same reason you would be against idolatry if you could clearly see what it is and what it's doing to you and the people that you love, like God can. So in Jeremiah chapter 19, look at this in verse 4. Let's do the thing. (laughs) Jeremiah chapter 19, verse 4. For they have forsaken me. God is just railing against the Israelites at the time. They have forsaken me and made this a place of foreign gods. They have burned incense to it incense in it to gods that neither they nor their ancestors nor the kings of judah ever knew and they have filled this place with the blood of innocent blood of innocent how's that connected to that they have built the high places of baal to burn their children in the fire as an offering to baal something i did not command or mention and it by the way never entered my mind this is why god is against idolatry you can see it clearly because it's thousands of years ago. You, you hear like, oh, child sacrifice, that's so primitive. Listen, people who live on the consequence side of a, a equation like Brian and me, like social workers, like maybe some school teachers, you see sacrifices, child sacrifices all the time. You see it in the name of the God of freedom or, or, or the God of love or, or whatever it is. And, and they're socially acceptable in their day because idols are always socially acceptable in their day. But every time you see injustice, every time you see an addict, you're seeing, every time you see a family torn apart by lust or unforgiveness, you're watching the consequence side of the equation of, of worshiping the wrong things. This is the witness of the entire Bible. You can disagree with me on this and you are wrong. It is from Genesis to Revelation, almost the reason every book in the New Testament was written. So, for example, Paul is a good Jewish person. He knows there is only one God that should be worshipped, right? Paul goes into the entire Greco-Roman world, planting these churches, getting them to realize, no, 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 those things aren't gods. Those gods aren't even real. If anything, they're like animated by like dark forces or something, but they're not real gods and they don't deserve your worship. And so he has to write back to them, like... These letters trying to, like, are you not worshiping those gods? Remember, there's only one God, and Jesus is the Son. Like, these are the kind of things he's saying. So, like, in the book of Romans, he's trying to wean the Gentile Christians, these new Christians, off of their gods, reminding them. Um, And then he's also reminding the religious people, the Jewish people, that they had made their religion a god. Because idols can be anything. He's reminding them, you've made your religion a god. That's what Romans is written to. Corinthians is written to stand against the idols in Corinth. Do you know that prostitution was everywhere in the Greco-Roman world? Everywhere. I mean, it was just ubiquitous. But the only place in the New Testament that Paul condemns it is in Corinthians. You want to know why? Anybody know what temple was in Corinth? The temple to Aphrodite. That was worshipped and serviced by a thousand temple prostitutes. And God and Paul is saying to that church there, don't you dare participate in that. God isn't like that. 
Does this make the Bible come more alive for you? How about this? How about this verse? In 1 Timothy chapter 2, this is a verse that um, you've probably heard before that Paul said. 1 Timothy 2, 15, Paul actually writes this. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. Thanks, Paul. So that's what he says. He's writing to this thing. Like it's, it, Some people have been very bothered by that verse, and I can understand why. But does it change the way you hear that? If you find out that Paul is writing to Timothy, who's planted a church in Ephesus, and Ephesus is where the ancient temple, it wasn't ancient in the time, it was very current. It's one of the seven wonders of the world, the temple of Artemis. And you can Google this. You can fact check me if this helps bolster it for you. But Artemis was the goddess that was known. She was famed. because She kept women safe during childbirth. And Paul is saying to Timothy, remind them. Artemis isn't God. Don't give their worship. It's scary. You know, a lot of women die in childbirth. Don't give your worship to Artemis. Jesus is Lord, not Artemis. From the beginning to the end, this is what the Bible is about. In fact, so much that the earliest New Testament letter that we actually have, a lot of people think it's 1 Thessalonians. And the very first thing that Paul actually writes in 1 Thessalonians um, to this little church in the middle of a world full of idols, he says this thing in 1 Thessalonians. Circle this in your Bible because this could be really meaningful for you in the future. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 8. Paul says, uh, the Lord's message rang out. <laughs> So sing it out all over the, the Macedonian Achaia, whatever that word is. Your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it. For they themselves, talking about the word on the street, they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescued us from the coming wrath. They turned away from idols and towards the living God. There's a philosopher named David Bentley Hart who says that what Paul is actually getting at here was a tradition that had just started developing among the first Christians. And it went like this. You know, for the first few hundred years, not just anybody could be a Christian. Before you could become a Christian, you had to watch for a couple of years. You had to see other people living out the way of Jesus before you decided this was what you wanted to do. And if you decided that you were, it was worth turning away from all that to turn towards Jesus, then you would wait, and on Easter Eve at midnight, you would take off all your clothes, as in the Garden of Eden, and you would descend into the baptistry. And once you descended into the baptistry, you would turn and face the west, where those pagan temples are the reason that we went to Greece. You would turn and face the West, the temples of Zeus, power, Aphrodite, love, sexuality, West, Hermes, money. Those things that have just rebranded but are still very much alive and battling for your heart. You would turn and face the West and you would spit and renounce the devil and his minions. And then you would turn and face the east and you would pledge your allegiance because that's where Jesus was said to be returning from. You would pledge your allegiance to King Jesus and then you would be baptized. And as soon as you came up from the water, you were known to the rest of the world by a new name. Atheist. Because you didn't worship those gods. I don't know if it's always true here for you, but today if you ask somebody on the street, do you believe in God? They're going to answer 
one of three ways. Yes, no, or maybe. But almost no one will say, which God? That is a gift that those Christians gave to the rest of the world. We, we live in a time and place that have been so captivated by the Christian imagination, we have forgotten what a gift it was. So the reason I wanted to do this, the reason I, I cared enough about wanting to do it here, is not because so many people have taken a step towards atheism. That, not because so many people have, ta- have become atheists, but because so many people unknowingly have taken, taken a step towards it, and honestly towards stuff they really, really don't want. Because when you take a step away from faith in Jesus... You are stepping towards something else. You cannot move away from something without moving towards something else. There was an article last year in the New York Times. It was talking about this. And the article is called, You Don't Believe in God? Maybe You'll Believe in UFOs. And it was just talking about how people, this is empirical. These people don't have an agenda. They're not trying to prove anything about why you should go to church or whatever. They say that people who don't go to church, who who, um, don't, have faith in God, that the religious mind still persists, but it manifests itself a different way. So that what happened is people who don't who stop going to church are twice as likely to believe in unsubstantiated evidence about things like alien invasions or UFOs or ghosts or things like that, which is an interesting thing, but that's not really our biggest problem, is it? I mean, you're not really concerned that people, too many people are going to start believing in like little green men. Now, here's the real problem we're facing. The real problem we're facing, and I honestly don't know how well this will be heard here. The real problem we're facing is that for the longest time, the last couple of decades in the West, there's been this really sneaky idea that what was making people intolerant was religion, right? That if we could just get rid of religion, that we would be more and more tolerant. Problem is... Turns out that's not true. Because one of the great gifts that we've had over the last 15 years is this grand social experiment. We've started to be able to see, like, okay, this is what happens with a rise of a group of people that walk away from faith in Jesus. So, in The Atlantic, which is a, a magazine I love, it's a left-leaning magazine. Last year there was this article called, um, well, in Texas, I don't say the name of the article, so I'll just, I will say it here. And I'm not a political person, but the, it, the article is called um, The Rise of Hate and Donald Trump. And here's what the Atlantic article says. The idea that secularism would make people more tolerant was naive. Secularism is indeed correlated with a greater tolerance of gay marriage and pot legalization, but it's also making America's part of partisan clashes more brutal, and it has contributed to the rise of the so-called alt-right movement, whose members see themselves as proponents of white nationalism. As Americans have left organized religion, they haven't stopped viewing politics as a struggle between us and them. Many have come to define us and them in even more primal and irreconcilable ways. The The article goes on to say that it turns out the people who have left church are more likely to be racist, nationalist, anti-immigrant, and anti-Muslim. They, uh, you know, that much-touted thing about how 81% of white evangelicals voted for uh, Donald Trump. Again, I'm not political, and I, I'm indifferent on, on this, but I do want to get this because it just keeps coming up over and over again. The article says the one thing that those 81% had in common more than any other characteristic is that they used to go to church and they stopped. 
They might be a part of a Facebook prayer group or they might watch a megachurch live stream online, but they are not getting the actual tangible benefits of the people of God gathering together. uh, Then it goes on to say the alt-right loves Christendom. The alt-right loves Christendom, but it does not like Christianity. It loves Christendom because that's an old-fashioned word for like Western culture or something, but it does not like Christianity because Christianity, and this is what the Atlantic says, refuses to put a premium on blood and soil because Christians have known for thousands of years God so loved the world, like the whole world, not just your skin color of the world, not just your brand, your tribe of the world, but the whole entire world. I know this sounds really cutting edge. It might even make you uncomfortable, somebody talking about this, and I would never talk about it. I would never talk about this if it wasn't for this. 2,000 years ago, Christians on Easter Eve walked into the baptistry and they turned and they faced the West and they spit. You know what they were spitting at? This. You know know what the Parthenon is? It's worship to the God of Athena. As in Athens. As in the God of our nation. As in the God of us. Here's the point. Unaware uh, not, not intentionally, so many of us moving away from one thing found that we were moving towards something and it was something the first Christians spit against that they, they moved away from. And we're called to do the same thing today. See, without considering it, so many of us have found ourselves in uncomfortable places that we never really considered, not because, it, it's just because we didn't consider the implications, not just of what we were turning away from, but what we might be turning towards. And here's, here's what I hope to like... Uh, hopefully at least make this idea compelling over the next day. If there is no God, there is no justice. Like, you can say there's justice, but it's your justice. And you can't tell me what your justice is to me. Who are you to tell me what justice is? If there's no God, there is no value. There's what you value, but you can't tell me I have to value it. If there is no God, and this one's, this one's going to be a little jarring to you, but it's true. If there is no God, there's no reason for the strong not to oppress the weak. In fact, there's several compelling reasons why they should. And have you noticed those reasons are making a comeback? Here's the thing that the early Christians know that we have forgotten. You cannot not worship uh, so last year, my wife and our kids were all in the backyard, and we were eating. It was a nice spring day in Abilene, and um, there was a blood moon that was just starting to come up. It was big and beautiful, and um, Leslie, my wife, told the kids, you know, people all over the world used to worship the moon, and some people still today do. And Samuel, our seven-year-old, goes, well, that's stupid. Those people are stupid. And Eden, our oldest, is really thoughtful, and she thought about it for a second. She goes, you know what? People are like minions. They're always looking for their boss. That's some theology according to Despicable Me for you. If that doesn't work, then how about this? This is the acclaimed author, David Foster Wallace. He says, everybody worships. Can you put that up? Everybody worships. The only choice we get, and this quote is more powerful because Foster Wallace was, a lot of people said, an atheist. 
The only choice we get is what we worship. The only compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough, never feel you have enough. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, you'll always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you'll die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. Worship worship power, you'll end up feeling weak and afraid. You'll need more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, you'll end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. But the insidious things about these worships is they're unconscious. They're default settings. We are absolutely dying to give ourselves away, is what he says. And we do it every day of our lives. The ancient people weren't crazy to have a God for sex and a God for work and a God for war and a God for justice and home and national gods. They weren't crazy because anything can be a God. In fact, I've seen just about all of those be a God in somebody's life. And it always makes promises it cannot keep. And it always leaves destruction in its wake, always. And that's why for those of us who have considered walking away from faith or those of us who are in relationship with people who are walking away from faith or those of us who like don't really get why church matters at all anymore and why you know that, that kind of habitual practice of gathering with God's people just seems easier and easier to walk away from, here's something to keep in mind. Today's atheism is often noble, and it needs to be applauded as such. Because often what they are doing is walking away from something that Christians were called 2,000 years ago to walk away from. In fact, that's what we were known for. You know, the first Christians were known as poor peasants who would share their money and life with other Christians because they did not worship the God of money, Hermes. They, they didn't worship the God of marketplace, Hermes. They didn't worship the gods of family and sex. So they were known as people who would take care of the widows. Who, for the, women flocked to the first church. You want to know why? Because for the first time in human history, there was a movement of people that did not define a woman by her relationship to a man. They, they, they didn't worship because they didn't worship the God of Aphrodite. They stood up against the gladiator games, even though it cost them their life and infanticide even though they were ostracized and shamed for their position on both of those things, because they did not worship the God of Ares, the God of war. They loved and forgave each other their sin, because as much as they cared about justice, they did not worship the God justice. There were gods specifically for justice, like names like Zeus and Nemesis. The early Christians were revolutionaries. In fact, there has not been a revolution since. But they were not just revolutionaries. They were also destroyers. And we should praise them as much for that as the first because there are many things that are worthy of destruction. Here's one of my favorite examples of this. In the Athens Museum, there's, um, this is Aphrodite. And you've got to, to know what they would have felt in the you know, first century they would have been terrified of these statues. Everybody around them would be terrified of these statues because it's not just a statue. In some way, it's a real presence of this God. People would walk around, try to avoid the gaze, the eyes of this statue. They'd be terrified of them. And I don't know if you can see that, but sometime around the first century, some Christian woman went up to a statue of Aphrodite and carved a cross in her head. I love that. In this world where there are revered as holy and untouchable as representatives of the divine some christian walks up there and 
carves a cross on her head. And before you start thinking vandalism or how intolerant, you need to realize what that Christian had seen. She had seen all the ways that worshiping Aphrodite had hurt people, probably had hurt her. She had spit and renounced the gods, and now she was not afraid of them. Do not dress this up. This is not some kind of detached cynicism. This is a criticism that costs. This is the kind of skepticism that got the early Christians fed to lions and why Christians in North Korea are sitting in jail cells all, like all over that country today because they refuse to worship an emperor who says he's God. When the Christians were known as atheists, that was not a miscalculation. It was true. They did not worship those gods. If you want to be an atheist, a really good atheist, I know how. You have to have some kind of ultimate place to stand from. You have to have some kind of platform to say, this is ultimate and those things aren't. And if you make it your intelligence or your reasoning power, you'll always feel dumb. You've never read enough. If you make it humanity, you're always going to be disappointed in humans. You might find yourself becoming bitter and angry and resentful that humans aren't doing the things that you want them to because you love them so much. You might, if you, if you make it pleasure, you'll always find pain. But the early Christians discovered that there was a God who wasn't like all the others. That this God was love, but not just love. This God was justice, but not only justice. This God was all that and more. And because this God was all that and more, none of it could be worshipped. Outside of only worshiping God, the first Christians were known as atheists. Today we worship too many gods. So that's what we're going to talk about tomorrow. Tomorrow morning and tomorrow night. And hopefully kind of help. And I'd love to talk to you more about this outside of just this talk too. So let's pray. God, thank you for gathering um, your people here today. Help us to have um, insight into our own lives. Help us to have inspiration and in, in thinking of what you've done throughout human histories with um, your people standing against the gods, standing against the idols. God, help us to believe well and not believe well. Help us to be able to resist the, the principalities and powers, name the principalities and powers in our life, around us, and help us resist them well by worshiping you well. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's sing a song.